1: You're listening to the Tudor's Dynasty podcast with Rebecca Larson.
0: Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Rebecca. On today's episode, we are joined by the wonderful Dr. Nikki Clark again. Nikki, welcome.
1: Hi, thank you for having me. It's nice to be back.
0: No, we're so excited to have you back because the last time you were here, we talked about one of my favorite Tudor ladies and obviously yours as well, Mary Howard.
1: We did, yes. Yes, she's a good one.
0: And she kind of works in today's conversation as well because she was a lady-in-waiting too, wasn't she?
1: She was, yeah. She was a lady-in-waiting to Anne Boleyn.
0: Perfect. So today, if you haven't guessed it yet, our topic is ladies-in-waiting. And we're going to try to really get in deep and understand who they were, what they did, and what that all entailed. And thankfully, Nikki is doing some great research right now on ladies-in-waiting. Can you tell the audience at all a little bit about what you're doing?
1: I can, yeah. I'm currently writing a book uh, that's due to be published in 2023. I think that's right. What year are we in? Nobody knows anymore. I think 2023 is right. Uh, And it's about the ladies-in-waiting who served the six wives of Henry VIII. Uh, The working title at the moment is The Waiting Game. Uh, and it's coming out with Weidenfeld Nicholson. And I'm writing that as we speak at the moment. Um, so, yeah, some of this research is ongoing. Some of it's not sort of definitive yet. Uh, but, yeah, there's a lot of great stuff coming out.
0: And if you don't follow Nikki on Twitter, I highly recommend that you do, because every once in a while you get these little nuggets of things that she has found. <laughs> so definitely follow her. We will give re- give you all of her handles at the end of the episode because it's it's interesting to see the stuff that you come up with and i'm so grateful that you share it with the twitterverse
1: just every now and again a little a little bit or or more likely it's um what sound like completely random questions twitter is a great way to find out really niche information really fast um but it's often it's often really quite bizarre
0: (laughs) it is definitely well let's just kind of like start from the beginning i know i feel like every episode i say that let's start from the beginning but really We kind of have to in this situation. So can you fill us in a little bit on what the structure of the Queen's household was, or maybe even the hierarchy, build that all together?
1: Yeah, sure, sure. So women at the Royal Court, uh, what we generally mean when we say that is the ladies-in-waiting, the women who lived at court and who served the Queen in her household. And they are, in general, women are a minority in the Royal Household. Um, There are many more formal and salaried positions available for men than there were for women. And so there's a lot more men than women at court. Um, for women, uh, as for men, service came in two forms. So you had ordinary service, which means your basic live-in daily attendance, usually although not always salaried. And then you have extraordinary service, which means you've been drafted in to cover someone else's absence. Or if you're a peeress, you've popped in while you're in town, and that's usually unsalaried. The number of women who hold the salaried daily service ordinary position um, that gradually increases a little bit across the 15th and 16th centuries. But during the reigns of the Henrys, it hovers around 20 women and then inflates a little bit slightly later on. Obviously, during Edward's reign, there's no queen. So there's no formal female household. On Mary's accession in 1550, about 30 women listed. So it, it does go up, but not by a lot. Not all of those women have the same rank or position in the household. Um, And this is a bit of a weird one because your position in the household relates directly to your social status or your class. Um, But it's not just as simple as let's pick one system of ranking and keep it there for the whole reign. Oh, no, that would be far too easy. So the terminology and the number of ranks of ladies in the royal household does change across this period. And they're not always consistent with the exact terminology they use, which is really freaking annoying when you're a historian. So under Elizabeth of York, so far as I can tell, you've got maybe three basic ranks of women in her household. You've got ladies who are the highest ranking women, gentlewomen, the middling kinds, and then the chamberers who tend to do the more manual work. Um, That changes and diversifies a little bit later on. Um, So later on, you, you might have great ladies of higher status. You then have ladies or sometimes ladies and gentlewomen of the privy chamber. And then you've got chamberers um, we add in six maids of honour who are young adolescent women in their teens for whom the royal court is a kind of finishing school environment and then you also might have women of the present chamber separate to the privy chamber but it, it's quite difficult to work out exactly how this functions and whether it stays the same the whole time but yeah the positions do diversify a little bit. So that's the basic kind of hierarchy, quite strongly linked to social class. And also, I suppose, to a degree on age, the maids of honor are always those very young adolescent women.
0: Yeah, I think one of the one of the things that gets confused the most is the ladies in waiting and the maids of honor and people interchange them and don't understand what the difference is. And you've just mentioned the age thing. Is there anything else that might help them in the future? Just, you know, concretely, no, no, that's a lady in waiting or that's a maid of honor.
1: I mean, the confusion is is understandable because the records are a bit confusing and it's hard to follow. The archive for all of this stuff is not nearly as straightforward as it is for Mary and Elizabeth's reigns. So there aren't nice convenient lists all of the time that show us exactly who is doing what when. So it is a bit of a um, educated guesswork as you go. <laughs> so Maids of Honour are young. They're nearly always in their early sort of mid to late teens, I guess. They're also always unmarried. You marry, you stop being a maid of honor is basically the rule.
0: Right. So technically speaking, Anne Boleyn was a maid of honor to Catherine of Aragon.
1: Well, probably. Again, actually when maids of honor come into being as a distinct group at court um, is a question that I still have and haven't managed to answer yet. We start seeing the, the term maid of honor, not really until the 1530s. There definitely are young adolescent girls in Catherine of Aragon's household, but it doesn't seem to be an explicit little group of women as it is later on in the reign. So I think the reason confusion comes in is that, as historians, we've tended to use the term maid of honour as a nice catch-all phrase. If she's a young woman and she's at court, oh, she must be a maid of honour. And that might be true earlier on in the reign, but it's really hard to tell.
0: Yeah, I, thank you for explaining that, because I think that opened a lot of our eyes to understand it. I didn't know that prior to the 1530s that there wasn't really that title being used. So that's really interesting. I,
1: I just haven't seen it yet in any document I've yet found. Wow. Um, so it, it could well be. They're not always very specific about how they record their own things like this. You know, trying to right. work out what the king's household is doing is equally difficult.
0: If they only put every little minute detail into their writings, right?
1: <laughs> I wish. If only. Did they not think of us as future historians? <laughs> right. Exactly.
0: Well, Nikki, can you explain to us, back to the ladies-in-waiting, who would typically be asked to be a lady? And were they asked, or was it something that you, let's say, applied for?
1: Ah, uh, recruitment. Recruit. How do you get this gig? Um, yeah, I mean, nepotism, broadly speaking, is the answer to that. The, the kinds of women who become ladies-in-waiting are usually related to women who are already ladies-in-waiting, or they might be related to men who are in service with the queen or with the king. So if your husband is consistently living at court, it makes sense that you would live there with him. It therefore makes sense that you'd be attached to the queen's household. So there's a bit of kind of almost bleed through from the king and queen's household in that way. Um, but if you do actively want to become, particularly a maid of honour is is what we know about, you can't just show up and hope that the Queen likes you enough to take her into your household. Um, she does ultimately need to like the look of you for that to happen. But to get near enough for her to make that judgment, you need the right connections to start with. And the best connections for that are women who are already in her household. So it, it's absolutely nepotism. I, I've read a lot of books. that that really lean on the role of men in bringing women to court. There's a lot of biographies of Anne Boleyn or Catherine Howard saying that, oh, the Duke of Norfolk spoke to the king and it was arranged in that way. And there is some evidence that the king has a role in accepting or declining women for the queen's household. Uh, It doesn't seem to be a super formal process. Uh, There's a document from Catherine Parr's reign where she wrote to him while he's away going, "Um, can I take so-and-so into my household? And the answer just seems to have been, yeah, crack on, it's fine. Um, But he he does definitely hold the power of veto. But the only time when the king really has a a very hands-on role in creating the queen's household is when it is a brand new household being created for a foreign queen. So Anne of Cleves, for instance, has her household put together by the king. Uh, But there's also a lot of evidence that initially, when that's not the case, female connections are the thing, even if perhaps later the king has to agree. A really good example of this um, comes from the Lyle letters. The Lyle's are amazing. We love them. They left so many letters. There's so cool. The Lyle's are in Calais for much of the 1530s. So when Lady Lyle wants to get one of her daughters into the Queen's household, she herself is living in Calais. So what they do is they get two daughters into the households of different countesses first with the idea that those women will take the daughters to court so the Queen will see them and might you know, pick one for the next vacancy in her household because there is a limit on how many women the Queen can have at any one time and there does need to be a gap before she can take any more in. And competition's fierce. There's a lot of discussion in the letters. Well, so-and-so's getting married. Is she going to stay or is she going to go? Can we have her spot? Will there be a gap? Uh, And sometimes yes, sometimes no. In the Lyles case, when eventually there was a gap, the Queen looked at both the girls, picked one of them, and that was that she was sworn into the queen's household, and I think that that's usually how it how it works. You need to have women who are there already who can put you in front of the queen was there bribery involved? not really it depends if you want to think of patronage as as bribery it's pretty standard i mean in order for to grease the wheels and, and get the girls into the right place to start with and to get the news you know is now a good time should we wait lady lyle does send a lot of gifts to various people who are at court and she gets her her guy who's in london on the ground for her to speak to various people who might you know have have a lead for her and she sends them gifts as a way to sweeten the deal i suppose but it's not really truly considered bribery i think if there was money involved that's when it becomes bribery
0: using their connections really
1: yeah absolutely yeah and i've never found an instance of of actual coin or money changing hands in order to get a woman into the household
0: so these women when they were going to come to the household were they responsible to purchased their own clothing? Was there a certain type of material they were supposed to use? What can you tell us about their induction maybe into the household? How did that look? Um,
1: Again, that's one that that sometimes looks one way and sometimes looks another way. The Queen does sometimes give clothing to her women. There doesn't seem to have been any particular uniform, so to speak. Um, Somewhere I read that they always wore black, and I'm not sure where that came from because I don't think that's the case. Um, There aren't very many surviving wardrobe accounts for the Queen, and that's what makes it tricky to know exactly what's going on with clothes. She does give her women sometimes her own hand-me-downs, which sounds really weird to us. Like, why would I want your old clothes? But she's the Queen, and her clothes are full of, you know, cloth of gold and nice fabric that you probably aren't going to get to afford or wear yourself. And it's a sign of favour. If you're wearing the Queen's old dress, everybody probably knows that you're wearing the Queen's old dress. That's a sign of favour. It shows she likes you. So actually, it's kudos to get that stuff. Um, in the Lyle letters, when Anne Bassett joins the household, the Queen does not pay for her clothes. And the clo- the um, clothing regulations seem to be quite specific at that time. So she is told, look, you can wear out your French apparel first. But after that, we need you to wear this kind of dress. She needs one that's black. She needs one that's tawny. Um, the Queen will only give her this much. She's going to need hoods. She's going to need a bonnet. She's going to need hose, etc. And Anne's letters back are quite often full of, please can I have some pearls? And there's a whole hoo-ha and she really annoys her mother when her mother sends her pearls and they're apparently not good enough. They're not on trend enough. It's a very, like, teenager and mother kind of interaction. <laughs> I think it's really recognisable. And Lady Dar's a bit like, you will be grateful for what you get. And Anne's like, well, look, I can't wear them if they're not cool enough. <laughs>
0: Now, Nikki, you, uh, as we're talking about this, you, kinda, you also spoke about how Henry VIII kind of helped pick out the household for Anne of Cleves or his foreign brides. One of the questions when I mentioned that you were coming on on social media was they were wondering if non-English or maybe later, of course, non-British or non-European women were eligible to become ladies-in-waiting.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yes. When a foreign princess comes over to England to marry an English monarch, um, which aside from Henry VIII's reign, Henry's reign is a, a weird anomaly in that there's a number of subject queens. But normally it's far more common for the king to marry a foreign bride. And yes, when she comes over, she brings women from her own country with her. And there's not a strict rule about what happens to those women. But as a general rule, they tend to stay at least for a little while. Some of them do. And then over time they might gradually trickle away if they're gonna go home and marry somebody there. A few of them might stay and marry into the English nobility as well. So eventually she'll be end up, she'll end up with a majority English household. But it can take a little while. So yes, there are women from other countries in England as ladies in waiting to Catherine of
0: Aragon and to Anne of Cleves. So these ladies in waiting, can you give us an idea of what? their every day looked like in the Queen's household?
1: I can try. Again, the thing with that is that I think it's very varied. Your duties will vary depending on your exact status within the household. But if you are a salaried lady in waiting holding a, a defined position in ordinary in the Queen's household, you are basically on duty full time seven days a week and you're not supposed to leave without permission. And what they're there to do really is to serve the queen in whatever way she requires so that might include personal service like helping her get dressed and undressed which took elizabeth the first three hours apparently Uh, it might include taking care of her clothes and her jewels keeping her chambers clean and attending her wherever she goes and whatever she's doing whether that's a banquet with a foreign ambassador to potentially sharing her bed at night if it's dark and she's scared or lonely etc Um, And while elsewhere, some of those things might be considered quite menial tasks, at court, they're duties of great honour because you're performing them for the queen. Um, So female courtiers do need quite a a diverse skill set, I suppose. They need to be able to talk to a lot of different people of different statuses and genders and nationalities all appropriately. So any language skills is an advantage. They need to be able to dance. It It doesn't hurt to be able to sing or play a musical instrument to ride and to hunt. And I think you probably need to be able to stay up late and get up early repeatedly without flagging. Um, and you also need to be virtuous. The Lyle letters take this very, very seriously. Lady Lyle was advised to make sure that her daughters, hoping to enter the Queen's service, were sober and sad and wise and discreet and lowly above all things, and to be obedient and to serve God and to be virtuous. For that is much regarded, to serve God well and to be sober of tongue. So, i.e., behave yourself.
0: This brief interruption is brought to you by, well, Me. Do you love Tudor's Dynasty? Consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of amazing things that the everyday listener does not. Find out more by going to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudor's Dynasty. And click Become a Patron for details. All right, back to the show. So these women were clearly beholden to the queen. What did the queen give them in return?
1: hacks of service could be... A number of different things. It's usually said that women are there to help their families and that families want eyes and ears near the monarchs. And it's true that a woman in service might well see or hear all kinds of important information that they can then pass on. And they also have access to areas of the court which are barred to most or all men. So only the Queen's women are going to enter her bedchamber, for example. And so in some ways, women function as like a barometer of the Queen's mood. If you want to know if now is a good time to ask the Queen for something, but you haven't seen her yet that day, but you see one of her women, she's the person to ask. They could also be the queen's confidant. They can be used by her to dispense patronage or messages and things like that. If If you're a woman in court service who's not married, you stand in good stead to make a better marriage than you might have managed otherwise, because you come into contact with a lot more eligible men in that environment. And the queen might sponsor your marriage. She might help arrange it. She might give you some money for dowry. Um, a position in the Queen's household sometimes comes with a salary as well. That's That might not be very much, but the Queen's women are also entitled to board and lodging, basically, food and fuel and light and lodging. And sometimes they do get clothing provided as livery and they get gifts of clothing or other valuable items. So when the Queen gives New Year's gifts, it's usually a piece of plate that is the, the correct kind of weight for your status. But if she really likes you, she might give you something more personal. Um, so Agnes Duchess of Norfolk at one point gets like a jewelled letter A um, of pearls set with diamonds uh, at one new year in 1522 from the Queen's own store. So that's, that's quite a mark of favour. Um, so yeah, you can get a number of useful things out of service at court.
0: I'm curious, you mentioned their lodgings, and I don't know how much information is out there about them. Do we have any idea of what their lodgings look like?
1: A little bit, yeah. It's more specific later on. Um, There are plans of, for instance, Hampton Court Palace from the 1530s and 40s that show that the women at court do have a specific sort of uh, room i suppose or set of lodgings set aside for them and so do the maids of honor who are there under the guidance of the mother of the maids who is um supposed to help them behave themselves i think which doesn't always work <laughs> um later on the maids of honor complain that their lodging is is rubbish basically it, it's not good they have divided a room up with a fake wall halfway through, but they haven't put the wall high enough. So all sorts of people peer over the wall and can see them all the time. Um, I don't think it's really great conditions, which which seems odd to us. You would think the royal court would have the most beautiful lodgings ever, and it would be like staying in a hotel all the time. But I think if you're a woman in service, it's really not like that.
0: That's crazy, because you would definitely think that they would have something a little bit more extravagant due to their position. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned how being at court with the queen would help them find a good marriage. What happened once they got married? Um, And then if you can go in from there, what happened once the lady became pregnant?
1: Yeah. um, Again, there's no hard and fast rule about this. Some ladies-in-waiting who get married then leave court and leave service, and they go and live on their husband's estates, and they become a kind of classic noble woman managing the estate, as many of them did. I think some of this is a geography thing. If you marry someone who lives in Northumberland, for example, then it's going to be hard for you to keep up your connections to court if you're needed at home way up in the north. If however you marry someone who is also at service in court with the king or someone who's on the council or something like that someone whose life is largely in and around the court or in and around london then it makes much more sense that you would essentially keep your place in the queen's household and you would stay where you lodge at court might be the thing that changes um a lot of men who hold office at court have their own individual lodgings they're not kind of bundled in together like the maids of honor uh, and you can you can bring your wife to those lodgings, there's nothing to stop you doing that. So quite possibly those women um, move out of a kind of joint female space and into, into lodgings with their husband, but they might well stay at court. Um, Anne Boleyn has a woman, I think she's a gentlewoman, she may have been a chamberer at some point, it's not quite clear. Her name's Marjorie Horsman. She's one of the women who's supposed to perhaps have accused Anne in 1536. Um, but she marries Michael Lister, who is in service with the king at some point in the middle 1530s. And the Lyles are, are really on this because they're hoping that they can maybe take that gap in the queen's household. But no, John Hussey, their London agent, writes back going, no, she's getting married, but she will keep her old room, which just means she'll keep her old position. She's not leaving. So it seems to really vary. In terms of what happens if a married lady in waiting becomes pregnant, I think she stays at court until it's time for her to go into confinement. And that's, they're usually aiming for about six weeks before the birth, although it's a bit give or take because um, their means of calculating exactly when conception occurred and exactly when you're due are not as exact as ours would be. So they they aim to leave, go into confinement, um, six weeks before the birth to keep you and the child safe, have the baby, And then you would wait for 40 days until you can be churched, which is a sort of purification slash blessing ceremony, but it gives you a nice recovery period as a woman who's just given birth. After that, you might well leave your child with a nurse and a governess and what have you at home and come back to court. I think it will depend as well what's going on. If nothing's happening at court, if the court's on progress and you've got a smaller group of people with the monarchs anyway, there's no point coming back right in the middle of that. So I think it might depend on the time of year as well.
0: One of the questions that a listener sent in, I really want to go to next because there were a couple and I want to start with um, whether or not there was any particular lady in waiting that stands out to you, maybe either for her dedication to the queen or her personality. Is there anyone who really just pops into your mind?
1: Oh, Dedication to the Queen, yes. Um, a foreign lady in waiting, actually. Her name was Maria de Salinas.
0: Ah, yes. Uh, she
1: came over. Yeah, she came over with the Queen in fifteen hundred. Well, with with Princess Catherine, as she then was, uh, for her to marry Arthur. She went with. She went to Ludlow with them. She was there when Arthur died. Came back to London. She was with Catherine all through that horrendous seven years of of poverty, being a pawn between her father-in-law, Henry VII, and her father, King Ferdinand of Aragon, who are arguing about the money and her dowry, and whether she's now going to marry Prince Henry or not, and it drags on and on. Finally, Henry VII dies, and then Catherine marries Henry VIII, as he now is, and Maria is still there. A number of the Spanish women have by now gone home. Most of the rest of them do after the coronation in 1509 but Maria stays put along with a couple of others, but she stays put. um, And she works her way up in the Queen's service. In 1514, the Spanish ambassador says that Maria is is the one who the Queen loves above any other mortal, which is is quite an accolade, really. And she marries an English nobleman called William Lord Willoughby. Uh, I'd love to tell you more about him, but To be honest, we don't know very much. I think if anyone is providing the character in that marriage, it's her and not him. He's left very little mark on central court records. But he is sometimes in service and sometimes not. She remains in Catherine's service, by and large. Um, Her daughter, Catherine Willoughby, later becomes Duchess of Suffolk. Her daughter Catherine is named after Queen Catherine of Aragon, who is the godmother she stays with Catherine until she's dismissed in the 1530s when Catherine of Aragon is sent away from court. Um, but even then, she stays in touch with her. She writes to Thomas Cromwell and says, look, the Queen is sick. Can I please go and see her? He says no. And so she says, well, screw you, gets on a horse and rides all the way from London up to Kimbolton Castle, where Catherine of Aragon is. She either falls from her horse genuinely on the way and gets muddy and wet or she pretends to have done so. She talks her way in saying, look, I'm a woman on my own in the middle of the afternoon in winter, I'm wet and cold. You're gonna turn me away, really? So they let her in reluctantly. She talks her way into the queen's chamber and then just refuses to leave. So she stays there while Catherine is ill and the legend has it that Catherine of Aragon dies in her arms. Uh, We can't prove that that was actually the case, but she was definitely there. And I think I don't know another lady-in-waiting who shows quite that level of of devotion to her (laughs) mistress, which is is quite touching.
0: It is. I love Um, that story so much. That is one of my favorite stories of a loyal lady-in-waiting. Yeah, yeah, she's great. Let's continue on. Um, You know, you mentioned Catherine of Aragon. Clearly, she was well-beloved by her ladies. Are there any of the Tudor queen consorts that you have found in your research that maybe didn't treat the the women of their household as well as they thought they should have been treated.
1: Oh, that's an interesting one. I'm just thrown in. Know that, yeah, I don't know that any queen consort treated her women badly. I think if there were issues of loyalty there, I don't think it was anybody's fault. Okay. Um, Anne Boleyn is an example who comes to mind. That must have been such a difficult position for women to be in around that time of Anne's rise and when Catherine is being sent away because essentially they've got a choice in front of them and it's just an impossible choice to make, isn't it? So if you've served Catherine for years and years and you might consider yourself her friend, that's cool, but the king doesn't like her anymore. So... You want to stay on the losing side, who's your loyalty to? What does your husband do at this point? What do your male relatives think, the rest of your family? Um, You're kind of being pulled in a lot of different directions, I think, and that must be really difficult. And then even if you survive this, you stay at court, you keep your place, now you're in service to Anne Boleyn, that's a very different kettle of fish from being in service to Catherine. Um, and even almost, you know, your own feelings are part of this. Yes, but they're almost not as important as all the things pulling you in, in different directions. Otherwise, you know, Anne has a very different, um, I want to say client base, that's probably not the right word, but you know, her friends are different to Catherine of Aragon's friends. And so you might have lost a lot of your influence and there might be new women coming in, um, who don't know how things work at court. I think it must be a really difficult atmosphere to be in. And then Anne gets executed, and suddenly you've got Jane, a new mistress, and again, some of you stay and some of you don't. But the turnover of women in the second half of Henry's reign is so fast that I think it's it's difficult, probably, to build a bond with a new queen consort after Catherine.
0: I can imagine. And, you know, now that I think of it, I don't think any lady would be dumb enough to put in writing that her queen treated her poorly
1: well there is there is that
0: yeah (laughs) i don't think that would i mean that would be more something probably that we would hear from an ambassador you know the hearsay he had heard that this was going on probably
1: yeah 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 especially if it's a spanish ambassador they tend to be very gossipy
0: oh they do definitely
1: (laughs) (laughs) there are some women who were not super pleased with Catherine howard for a while
0: oh tell me Um, more
1: Well, she is sort of trying to carry on a liaison with Thomas Culpepper in the King's household, which obviously she shouldn't be doing. Um, And Jane Parker Boleyn, Lady Rochford, Viscountess Rochford, is the one who is largely facilitating that. I don't have a good answer as to why, but that's what happened. And because of that, because they're very cautious... Catherine obviously doesn't want all of the rest of her women kind of coming in and out of her chamber like they might normally do. And some of them later when they're questioned, remember this and remember it being odd. And they remember feeling slighted, like after Lady Rochford is here, the queen doesn't want to hang out with any of the rest of us. You know, she doesn't like us anymore. She locked the door, like that's weird, that never happens. Um, So yeah, they were not super pleased about Lady Rochford's influence.
0: So you might have just answered my next question, or maybe I'm mistaken, but who would you say was the naughtiest or the most scandalous lady in waiting? Is there any one of them that would Ooh. really shock us?
1: Um, I, I don't think it's Jane Lady Rochford, actually. I think, again, she's a woman making some difficult decisions and doing some, you know, making some bad decisions, but who are we to judge in a difficult atmosphere? I suppose there is a woman who is in Anne of Cleves' household and then in Catherine Howard's called Dorothy Bray. um, And she is openly having an affair with William Parr, Catherine Parr's brother at this time. Uh, It seems to be an open secret, which is really interesting. Uh, And Catherine Howard at one point said to Thomas Culpeper, if I wanted to, I could have you in the same state as, as Dorothy Bray has my Lord Parr in. Like it's a kind of open thing to joke about, which seems very strange to us because when scandal breaks at court, It's a big deal. But apparently it's not that uncommon for a maid of honour to be having an affair with a nobleman who at that point, thinking about it, is married. Dorothy Bray later marries somebody else who's at court, I think. Um, yeah, so that's interesting. She's probably not supposed to be doing that.
0: (laughs) Probably not. I think it's frowned upon.
1: (laughs) I think so, generally. (laughs) I think it probably, probably this happens more than we think that it does, because it's not the kind of thing that got routinely written down.
0: Right, yeah. Um,
1: But I'm always reminded that uh, Eustace Chapuis, the Spanish ambassador, wrote, it's a really catty comment, but he said he'd be shocked if Jane Seymour was still a virgin after spending so long at court. (laughs)
0: that's a funny conversation because i i have suspected for a long time that maybe she wasn't when she married henry but we have no way of proving these things and that's what's so tough
1: yeah Yeah, exactly unless you happen to have some kind of anecdotal account uh we don't know what was going on in in dark stairwells
0: nikki oh my gosh this conversation was so fun today i wish we had like two hours to talk about this (laughs) (laughs) let's let all the listeners know how they can find you, where they can support you. Uh, sure. I'm
1: on Twitter uh, at Nikki Clark 86. Um, I do tweet quite a lot about all kinds of nonsense. Some of it's history. Some of it's not. Some of it's plant related. I had a lot of houseplants. <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, so I do share things about the things I'm working on and writing about. What else? Uh previous book was about the Howard women, including Mary Howard. Um, several of whom were ladies-in-waiting, which is how this project came about, actually. I wrote a chapter in that about the Howard women as courtiers, and as I was writing it, I realized that the context that I wanted to put them in just didn't really exist in the way that I needed it, and I thought, hey, next project, I'll write that book.
0: That's the best when it happens just organically like that. You're already doing the research. It's there. And what a great addition after your last book to add this one in. I cannot wait for it to come out.
1: Uh, Yeah, I really hope it. I hope it'll get the last one was was much more kind of a pure academic book. Um, And this one is written more for a general audience. So it's it's quite a different vibe, but it's a lot of fun to write.
0: Oh, wonderful. Uh, I can't wait. We'll be in touch when it comes out and remind everybody about this episode. Maybe have you back on again to talk a little bit more. Dr. Nikki Clark, thank you so much for being on. Thank you very much for having me. And that concludes this episode of the podcast. A special thank you to my newest patrons, Susie, Blair H., Stephanie G., Louis W., Rosemary K., Alexis B., and Nicholas S. Coming up on the next Ask the Expert with Steph, we have the ever-knowledgeable Ian Mortimer here to answer your questions on living in an English home from the years 1400 to 1700. What does that mean? I guess you'll have to tune in to find out.